As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to No Sleep Till Belmont, your Islanders podcast from The Athletic. I'm Arthur Staple, your Islanders beat writer, joined as always by AJ Maletsko, traveling around, but I think she's back home now. So good good to hear you uh, settle down for a few seconds, AJ. Yes, it's, I'm home after uh, Islanders win last night, which was which was good. A win is always good, <laughs> no matter how you get there, I guess. But uh, yep, had to travel back home and feed my kids some lunch, and now let's talk some miles. Yeah, exactly. So since we... We're last here with you a week ago. Um, we had Ilya Sorokin's first win and first shutout, which was that night last uh, last week in Buffalo, and then a couple of clunkers in Pittsburgh, and then one last night uh, against the Sabres. That was a win, two points. Doesn't matter how you get them, uh, especially this season. Um, but did you see any kind of trends from the last three, I guess, uh, that are concerning you or um, things that are... Uh, giving you some some positive vibes uh, despite some of the results? Well, first of all, I think it does matter how you get the two points, but that's purely speaking from the analysts, the TV analysts of this team, because it makes my job a little easier, but a heck of a lot more fun when they win the right way. So I'll, I'll just preface it by saying that um, I didn't love the first two periods of the game last night against Buffalo. I did like the second game against Pittsburgh. Now that was the Sydney, Sydney Crosby, uh, right. 1000th game. And, you know, I, I just think that that team, that the way that guy's career has gone, there was just no chance they were going to lose that game. Um, but I did like the way the Islanders played and I think they made it really tough on them. Um, is there anything that's alarm? any trends that are alarming? Uh, you know, what surprises me is a Barry Trotz coach team is usually really detail focused, detail oriented and about the process, winning the right way, right? I, I getting those two points certainly matters. Now Barry Trotz has always talked about how he understands that they're in a results driven league, but he's always been focused on the process. And in an 82 game season, that's okay because that process really does come back to help you in the end. And in a 56 game season, it's a little different that the results matter just a little bit more and trends matter matter a little bit more. So you know, some of the, some of the players not getting the puck out of the zone when they're high in the D zone, just not chipping it over that blue line. Those turnovers have been so costly. Um, I think that not getting the puck in deep, sometimes trying to get a little cute with it. Um, I think those sorts of things, um, sometimes not that often, but I've seen a couple bad changes, which is surprising. 
they've had a couple games where they've been really bad at the faceoff dot, which is surprising. Last night was uh, was an ex- was trending in the right direction in that sense. Brock Nelson and Pajot were both over fifty percent, and I think uh, Brock was closer to seventy five percent at the at the dot. So. Uh, you know, I think that the shots on net last night, they had three in the first period. They were missing the net. So there were those sorts of things, just the focus on the details. That seems very unusual with a Barry Trotz coach team. And those are the trends that I don't like, but I do trust that Barry Trotz will get them back on track in, in terms of those details. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, it's I think people sort of feel like when we talk about the Islanders and we're talking about details, uh, people's eyes tend to glaze over. But I think when you think of some specific examples that lead directly to goals, and maybe in re- in recent years, they just didn't lead directly to goals, which the Islanders were able to kind of cover up for each other. But I think if you if you look specifically, the tying goal that Pittsburgh had in the third period on Saturday, uh, Matthew Barzal kind of a, you know, not the strongest attempt. It was the close to the end of a shift. Mike Matheson kind of pushes by him. Um, you know, with Pittsburgh pushing up with four, Andy Green and Noah Dobson aren't strong at the blue line. They're, they've backed all the way in, I think, almost to the hash marks. And then Barzell just lets Matheson go by him to the slot and wide open for a tying goal. And then Pittsburgh ends up winning it late on a on a screenshot. Um, you know, these are the kind of things that uh, Matthew Barzell makes up for those errors time and time again with the way that he plays. But, you know, we talk about it. Barry talks about it. These are individual situations. He's not talking about team breakdowns. He's not talking about structural stuff. He can point to specific instances of you, player X, did this, and then player Y for them put it in our net. And that's happened an awful lot, even through 18 games. Yeah. And, you know, I think they've leaned pretty heavily on Varlamov. And you look at his performance last night, he had 30 saves, but they were good saves. And the only way they beat him was a crazy tip in front. And then Reinhardt batting that one right. out of the air. I mean, two two goals that I don't think he any goalie would save, right? I mean, he had no business saving those. So Varlamov did everything he could to keep them in the game and to make sure to sort of cover up, uh, become the eraser, as Barry Trotz has said, right? Erase those mistakes. Um, you know, and, and that is an interesting, you know, you go back to the Sidney Crosby goal, the first goal that he scored in, I think, game one, where Brock Nelson has the turnover, but then Adam Pellick just lets... Sidney Crosby cut through, right? He, he doesn't sort of have his head on a swivel, as they say. So you take those two players, Nelson and, and Pellick, they're two of my favorite players on the, I mean, I guess they're all my favorite in different ways, but experienced veteran guys, and they're making those mistakes. Now, in this season, the teams that will capitalize on those mistakes and be opportunistic are going to succeed. And the Penguins certainly are like that. I don't think the buff, that the Sabres are quite as much. Um, they have the talent and the skill to be like that, but they're just not, gelling quite as much. I think it had the Islanders played the way they did last night against a, a stronger team or a team with more co- consistent cohesiveness. It would have burned them a little bit, a uh, little bit more, but I agree with you. You look at somebody like Matt Barzell though, and the evolution in Matt Barzell is that he's going to make plays like that. And he's going to take a, a penalty, which in my opinion, wasn't a great penalty last night, sit there and fume for two minutes and then come out like he was shot out of a cannon and have the shift that he had that caught that led to their goal. Right. So that's great. And then another one that we did replay in the post game last night was he made a terrible drop pass, just a bad decision high in the offensive zone that caused a turnover. And he got on his horse and he back checked and got that puck back and turned it the other way. So I think that's the evolution is the response to mistakes. The mistakes themselves aren't the issue because everybody is going to make mistakes. There's no question. That's that's the name of the game. How do you respond to them? And I think that some of the players are responding better than others. 
Yeah, and I want to kind of focus in a little bit more uh, from this past week of games on two of their young forwards, uh, Oliver Wallstrom and Kiefer Bellows. Now, Bellows got in the lineup for the first time in a while on Thursday, and uh, it was pretty much an unmitigated disaster for him. And we haven't seen him since, and that's how you can tell it was a disaster for him that that Barry is not going to let him play through the mistakes that he made. You mentioned the the Sidney Crosby goal where Brock Nelson has the puck kind of right, you know, just off to the side of the net, maybe 15 feet out, and he looks up. And I think the reason that he hesitated was because he's supposed to see Kiefer Bellows on the wall as his, as an option for an outlet. And instead, Kiefer Bellows is about three feet from him because Bellows is a little bit lost in space after he lost an edge trying to get to the point. Uh, and then it's turnover and quickly in the net. In the third period, the 3-1 goal that kind of clinched it, uh, Bellows tracked uh, a Penguins forward below the net, came back up, saw Oliver Warstrom in the spot that I think he was supposed to be in, and then didn't take Jason Zucker cutting to the net, and all of a sudden it's 3-1. Those are, again, mistakes. And we talk about Matthew Barzell's mistakes, and I'm asked this a lot by fans, that why does one player get away with the mistakes and one player does not? And I think it's just basically, and Barry explained this, and I think has explained it a lot, when you're on the fringe, you got to do everything right in the time that you get. You get an opportunity. And, and, and you know, Barry's quote after that game was was maybe the strongest quote he's ever had about a specific player, especially a young player, where he mentioned Michael Dalcall came in and took advantage of his opportunity, played the way that Barry wants him to play. Same with Wallstrom, who's made a couple mistakes, but I think has shown a lot of uh, improvement in the detail area of his game in addition to the offensive skill. And he said that was Kiefer's opportunity, and you got to take advantage. And that's kind of coach speak for we'll see you when we see you. So um, you see a young player like that, and maybe it's frustrating for fans who feel like Bellows deserves more of a chance, uh, maybe the chance that Wallstrom's getting. But I think there's a, there's been a pretty wide gulf between the way the two of them have played, especially in the detail area of the game. Well, yeah, and I think that Wallstrom now has a has a larger data points, right? There's there's a, a bigger uh, array for for Barry Trotz to look at and the more that they play any of these players obviously the longer or the more trust that is built or vice versa right um so I think that with somebody like uh Kiefer Bellows he comes in and and I agree with you I was actually surprised to hear the strong words coming out of Barry's mouth saying that he's been in all the meetings there's no excuse for the way Bellows played and you know we we in the media will always sort of reiterate what Barry says about the details of the game and and the layers, the defensive layers, and and your example on the uh, Sidney Crosby goal is a perfect example of how the layers are sort of failed them, right? So so we can look immediately and say Adam Pollock didn't see Sidney Crosby and Brock Nelson turned it over, but you got to look look a couple more details beyond that. If everybody's doing their job and they trust in each other, then it's going to work like a well-oiled machine. The problem is that if Bellows is not there, Brock Nelson should then be able to chip it out, right? So I'm not saying that it's all Bellows' fault or it's all Brock's fault or it's all. Uh, Adam Pellick's fault, right? That's the whole idea of a team. Um, when you're looking at somebody like Kiefer Bellows, he and Oliver Wallstrom, frankly, are both brought in to score goals. But if they are going to, if, you know, we compare in, in your your question here, you're, you're comparing a little bit to Matt Barzell. Matt Barzell is going to make a mistake and then he's going to turn around and score a goal or create a goal. Right. So if Bellows is going to do that. If he's going to make a mistake and lose his coverage on Jason Zucker and then get mad at himself and turn around and be so dynamic and such a game changer that he can get on his horse and create something and make a play, then I think that's how you build the trust with a, with a coach, right? Barry Trotz understands there's going to be mistakes out there and watch, you know, if you look at the body lines between Trotz and Barzell over the last two seasons, 
and I've been down up close and personal being between the benches. I mean, Barry Trotz was not afraid to bench Matt Barzell when he first got here, right? I mean, you're not backtracking. You're not playing the right way. You're, you're too risky to us out there. Yes, you're creating offensively, but you're too risky defensively. So now, okay, a couple of years later, you've, you've solidified some of your defensive play. That doesn't mean you're not still making mistakes, but you're better and you're still creating the offense. So I think that that's what people maybe miss out is, why is this leash longer? Well, there's a couple years worth of data on it that Barry Trotz can talk to and have a conversation with them and know what they're capable of. And, you know, we talk about Oliver Wallstrom. He's learning so much from J.G. Pajot. And we, you and I have talked about that. He's really leaning on him as a veteran. And J.G. Pajot is such a good mentor and leader out there. And you look at how Wallstrom's built. And how about the other night when they pulled the goalie a minute left in the game? They've got Wallstrom on the ice. And that's a huge testament to Barry's trust in him that not only might he actually score the tying goal, but he trusts him enough to not make a bad giveaway or not make a bad defensive play that will end up in the empty net. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, well, we've looked back and now we'll look ahead a bit. And uh, the Islanders, no easy weeks, it seems, in this uh, in this crazy division. Bruins come in on Thursday. Uh, Penguins come in for two more. That makes six in the month of February, back-to-back Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and that means that Ilya Sorokin is going to get at least one of these games. And uh, we didn't really talk about his game last week. But I think we saw that, the you know, he made incrementally better appearances in his first three. First one was terrible. Second one was a little better. Third one was almost to good, even though they didn't win. They lost in overtime in Philly. And then it was, uh, I guess it was a 17 or 16-day break until he got his next chance and was a shutout in Buffalo, first win, first shutout. Um, he flashed a little bit of his uh, personality, even struggling through with no interpreter after that game when someone was, I think Shannon Hogan asked him, uh, what will you remember from this first game? And he said, video review, which which helped him get a shutout because the Sabres had a goal called back on an offside. Um so I think that's a sign that this uh, this guy is feeling much more comfortable, and he certainly looked much more comfortable in that. Yeah, and actually, funny story about that. Shannon thought that he meant this video interview, <laughs> and so she went with it, and was we were having a good chuckle about that because you know he did do a great job. You can tell that he is working really hard on you know it, it, uh, sort of fitting in and getting to know culturally, language, all that stuff, but also obviously on the ice. He's working really hard to get work with the team and do what he needs to do. I think that first game, I, I can I have no issue throwing that out and not even really considering it just based on the circumstances. Varlamov gets hurt. He, you know, Sorokin gets what, 10 minutes, not even to know right. that he's got his first start in the NHL. So move on from that. I agree with you. Uh, everybody wanted his his first win so badly and we finally got it. Not only that, it was a, his first shutout. So you sort of kill two birds with one stone in terms of the 
those milestones. Now we can just work with Mitch Corn and Piero Greco and just make sure he's he's continuing to work in those traffic areas, work on the angles on the on the smaller ice surface, all those little details that uh, are going to be a big adjustment for him coming over from the KHL. So the more he does that, that big win the other night in Buffalo or a week ago in Buffalo, I think that that did a lot to um, build his trust with the team. They would say, we trust him, we trust him, we trust him. They can say that to us, the media, all they want, but he really it does take time to build that trust as a player in front of you. If you know a goaltender is going to make some of those saves and then come up with the with the big ones. It, he only had 20 saves in that game, which was sort of crazy to me because it felt like he was busier. Um, and I thought they were they were good saves. They were tough saves and timely. And that's the big one. They built momentum to go the other way. So I do think he's going to get a chance to play against Pittsburgh in one of these back-to-backs. And, uh, and I'll be curious to see how he does and how the team responds in front of him. Now I think they got that psychological hurdle too. They They won't be quite feel the pressure to win in front of him. But, um, but I do think that Barry Trotz has been, he's been clear that Varlamov's his guy. He needs to give him some rest here and there and, and he's good with Sorokin, but Varlamov is his starting goaltender. And unlike the last two seasons where he could do a 50, 50 split for the first, you know, two thirds of the season, he's, he's giving Varley the, the net for the most part. Yeah. And there's a couple of back-to-backs coming up in the next few weeks, but I think, uh, also Barry made sure to mention that, um, They've been kind of reactive um, in terms of the scheduling the goalies, which I would assume means that they really sort of saw what what Sorokin was doing and his confidence level and the play and team's confidence level in him and said, mm, maybe we're going to keep him off the ice here for a little bit while we've got the opportunity to do so and let Varlamov get on a little bit of a run. And now planning to go forward, he made it sound like we're we're going to keep on more of a schedule. And I'm sure that that game last week helped ease their minds that Sorokin could handle more than just the the second half of the back-to-back starts that maybe there are some some schedule moments where they can get Varlamov, you know, maybe 3 or 4 days consecutively of just working with with Mitch Corner and Piero Greco and not having to be in a game um and that Sorokin can, you know, can handle himself as opposed to just, you know, waiting for that back-to-back situation to come up. Having said that, this weekend he's going to play in a back-to-back and it's going to be the Penguins. And the Penguins have given Semyon Varlamov and the Islanders all kinds of trouble so far in the previous four games. I think the Islanders have only won one. They've lost one uh, in a shootout and then two in regulation this past week in Pittsburgh. Um, it'll be Sorokin's first home start, even though it doesn't seem like there's going to be fans in the building. They have the option, right, uh, I think starting today to have fans in the building. It doesn't sound like they're going to do it. But uh, I'm curious to see how Sorokin reacts to seeing Sidney Crosby and seeing Chris Letang and seeing Evgeny Malkin, uh, where, you know, he's played against some good players. Philly is a good team. The Rangers have plenty of firepower. Buffalo is, is has some high-end players, even though they haven't shown much results against the Islanders. So, uh, you know, do you feel like there's a difference coming for him when he's going to see, you know, the Penguins' big stars that I'm sure he's heard about for a long, long time? Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting because you'd think somebody coming in new to this league, maybe they have a little bit of an advantage where they don't get psyched out by you know, the teams that have this, this firepower, these, this core of superstar elite players. But then you think, well, Sidney Crosby is a global name, right? I mean, you're in the KHL, you know who Sidney Crosby is, you know, and of course, you know who Genny Malkin is over there. So um, I think that that is going to be an interest. I think that's probably going to be one of the, one of the uh, more psychological challenges for him in the sense of of playing against a, a, you know, big time Russian player like Malkin 
Um, but on the flip side of it, that could be what exactly what he needs to sort of raise his game and say, this is so exciting. I'm going to play against somebody I've looked up to. Right. And, you know, when we had Crosby's 1000th game on Saturday, talking to some of the players beforehand and Matt Brazil's like, I grew up watching this guy, right. You want to try to emulate him. You can't cause he's unique. And so you've got that sort of same thing, maybe coming in, not that he's emulating a forward, but just that these names and these, it, you maybe do elevate your game a little bit to say, this is so great that I'm on the ice with these superstars, with this team that's won three cups in the last decade, or I guess now 12 years. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, that will be interesting to see how he does. Um, it's interesting to note that we talk about giving the guys, the, the goalies breaks, right? So that Barlamov doesn't get shoulders so much of the burden of these 56 games, but in a game like Barlamov last night played great, had 30 saves. Last week, Sorokin in his uh, first win, he gets 20 saves. In a practice, these guys are making hundreds of saves, right? So physically, they're actually getting more work in practice, right? They're getting more exhausted, but it's that mental break that they need. And that's what I think people maybe forget that that's where the goalies get their work in the most volume of shots in practice. So for Varlamov to get three or four days, quote unquote, off from games, that's when he's really getting sort of physically beat up a little bit, but he's getting that mental break of preparing for games. And I think that that's a, that's an interesting thing to note that the goalie position is such a psychological one. Yeah. Um, well, we've been kind of negative, justifiably so they didn't have a great (laughs) week, but, uh, I want to highlight a couple of positives I'm seeing here. You know, we're, we're, uh, 18 games in, it's almost a third of the way through. Um, and I think maybe we haven't given enough, uh, enough love to Anders Lee, who scored a, his eighth goal of the season last night, which would put him roughly on a 35 goal pace during a, you know, maybe a little bit more than that during a full season, which is something that I don't think a lot of people thought he could get back to after that 40 goal season in John Tavares's last year. Um, I think people thought that he was more a product of, of uh, his line mates and even playing with Matthew Barzell in the in the Barry Trot system doesn't lend itself to to big numbers and he's been over 20 the last couple of years which is a good spot to be for a team that doesn't score a ton but I think most people and I'll include myself in that thought that the the real heights of being an elite power forward goal scorer were, were behind him you know he's still an important guy on this team he's the captain uh, he still does a lot away from the puck and he's a, he's a real presence but I'm really impressed with him uh, not just standing in front of the net and getting his hands back, uh, that seemed like he, you know, was fumbling a lot of pucks last season in that, in his, in his office right there, but he's moving well. Like he looks like, even though he's 30 years old, that he's, he's improved his skating, which I can imagine is a very difficult thing to do a decade into your pro career. It is incredibly difficult. And, um, take it from me. I, I did, ha- I had to do that when I moved from forward to defense and I had to work it, it just tirelessly with skating coaches to work on pivoting and different things that I, and I was always, I always was considered a pretty good skater, but I had to change different parts of my skating. And I was younger than Anders is. Um, He worked on his skating during the quarantine and he's talked about it when they went, you know, everything shut down last spring, but then leading up to the, the playoff bubble, he worked with a skating coach. He really uh, um, worked on his edges and his balance and, and then therefore his power, right? That's where a lot of it comes from. If you're very, if you've got that, that balance and you've got that hip flexibility, then you can create power. And he said it also it helped his fitness level and his, the, his ability to stay out longer and uh, on the ice. And you see it because he's against, you know, he's always been strong in front of that strong on his skates, on his legs, strong against the boards, but you can see he's got a little bit more explosiveness coming through the neutral zone. And you can see that not only now is he 
planting and boxing out when he's in front of the net, for example, but he's able to also use his hands and use his legs to, to make something happen rather than just park himself there. So I have been incredibly impressed with that change. Um, and interestingly, he worked a lot in the, before the bubble, but I, you know, I have to believe he continued it during this off season in September, October, November, because I think he looks even better now in this, in that regard than he did in the playoff bubble. Um, and I think for somebody like him, he has great hands. He's got a knack for the net. There's a lot of, a lot of things to like about his game that he's had, um, even, um, He's a lot of things that he's to like about his game leading up to it, being the captain, being a leader, being a mentor, all those things. But I think that that adding that skating element uh, has really changed his game. And Barry Trotz told us yesterday at the media availability, uh, Anders Lee has been our most consistent forward. He's not saying MVP, not saying the best, but the most consistent forward they've had this season through the 18 games. Well, now we're going to change gears a little bit because this past week after our last show and, you know, before this one, uh, there was a pretty major American hockey anniversary. And I know what you're thinking. It's not the Miracle on Ice, which was February 22nd, 1980. Uh, Very important milestone in American hockey. We've talked about it, uh, maybe not here, but I think everybody who's a hockey fan in the New York area and in the States in general has talked about it as something that was a huge influence on American hockey. I'm talking about something that's a little bit uh, a little bit more personal to my co-host, February 17th, 1998, and that was the first women's Olympic hockey gold medal was handed out, and one of them was hung around AJ's neck. So, uh, happy anniversary with 23 years, which I don't want to make you feel old, but that's pretty I'm impressive. <laughs> wow. I, although it makes me feel better when I see Miraclinus was 41 <laughs> that's years right, ago. That's so. right. That's right. Next time you, know you run, in, next time you run into it. Kenny Morrow, you can say, "All right, well, that was at least a little bit, a little bit older." That's true. <laughs> so I actually had a re- recently. I, ch- I was talking with Mark Johnson, and we had we were we were chatting about it, and uh, of course, he looks younger than I do, so that <laughs> that really ticks me off too. But yeah, twenty three years ago, I'm on a uh, giant group chat with my teammates that we've been on for a couple years, and it's a wonderful way. For, you know, we've had through quarantine, we had a bunch of Zoom, so we we do still stay in touch. We had a big twentieth reunion. Uh, all but two of us were able to get together with families, which was just tremendous. Um, and then now we're, we've decided we're already going to start planning for our 25th because it's two years away, but it'll come quick. And, um, it's so many of us work in hockey though, that'll have to be in the summer. So the summer of in two years, we'll, the 23, we'll, we'll plan something fun. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was a great, it's always a great day. Every year we, we do reminisce about it and we share pictures and, and somehow every year, a picture surfaces that I've never seen before. And I love it, but it's crazy to me. I, this year I saw pictures from our locker room celebration that I'd never seen before. So it's uh, it's a good, good day. Yeah. I, I'm always, I'm curious to know, you know, people always ask uh, whether it's Kenny Morrow, who's one of the most accessible, nicest human beings around uh, and has worked for the Islanders pretty much since the, a few days after he uh, won that gold medal in 1980, um, you know, people always want to know, and there's obviously a movie and everything about what it was like to get that team together. What w- what was it like knowing uh, that there was going to be a chance to play in the Olympics and just the competition for roster spots and and joining together with probably some some women you'd played against very, you know, been very competitive with over the years. Yeah, we didn't have the the Miracle on Ice, like Minnesota versus BU situation, <laughs> only because women's hockey, uh, this was the first time women's hockey was ever in the Olympics, right? And and that's a tough to even wrap our heads around it. So the whole process of making the team started, I mean, you know, it started whenever you went out for any Team USA event or tournament or international um, 
thing that was going on. But for the actual Olympic team, it started in August of 1997. And so, you know, Coach Ben Smith picked 25 of us out of, I don't know, over 100 people were at that festival to go on tour. And we left right from there. We went over to Finland and Sweden and we had a, a big trip over there. And then we traveled together the entire fall. And then he made the final five cuts. Only 20 of us were on the Olympic team. He made the final five cuts on uh, right before Christmas, uh, which is it's still a tough memory only because it's such a weird balance between elation and thrill and just can't even wrap my head around the fact that I'm, I'm going to be an Olympian and you have to say goodbye to five of your teammates and best friends who have been with you in the trenches and fighting with you all along the way. So that was a, that was a really tough time. But then, then, you know, we get to go over to Nagano, Japan, halfway around the world. And I always say my three favorite parts of the Olympics were uh, the opening ceremony, because we got to walk in all dressed the same team USA. It was the first time that I really sort of got out of my own way as a hockey player and, and looked, looked at the forest around me and, and said, whoa, I'm a part of Team USA. This is really incredible and amazing. Um, I loved the Olympic Village because we all, the whole Team USA was in one dorm, but then we all ate at one cafeteria. So you'd walk around, you'd see people from all different countries, all different sports. You could try to try to figure out what kind of, what sport they might play. <laughs> Um, and then of course, winning the gold medal was, was tops it all off and, and the closing ceremony, the party that followed it. So it was, uh, surreal memories and so thrilling. I still can't put to words what it means to have been on that team, but, um, cherish memories for sure. And going into that gold medal game, you know, I think people, I hate to keep comparing it to 1980, but obviously 1980, not just the gold medal game, but, or the semifinal against the Soviets, but the U S team wasn't expected to do anything because they really hadn't achieved so much in, in the men's side in the Olympics. What were the expectations for your, for your team? And going into that gold medal game, were there any expectations that you could beat Canada? Uh, in our locker room? Absolutely. <laughs> all of us believed we were going to win. And, and I say that without, that is absolutely true. We all knew we were going to win. And the way the women's team uh, tournament was set up was there were six teams. Now there are more, but there were only six teams first time ever. And it was a round Robin. So in some ways it was similar to the 1980 team because that was a round Robin. Right. And then mm -hmm. they, if they had lost to Finland the day after two days after the Soviet upset, they wouldn't have even gotten any medal, let alone they just not a silver. So for us, we did a round robin. We played all five teams. And the last game we played was on Valentine's last round robin was on Valentine's day. We call it the Valentine's day massacre because we went out, we were down four to one with 12 under 12 minutes left in the third period. And we came back and won seven to four. And we just stormed back the last 10 minutes and just scored six goals. And, um, we feel like that was the day that we actually won the gold medal because we, we really made Canada question whether they were going to win. They had so much confidence up to that point. And then here we are storming in and winning that game. And then three days later, we take to the gold medal ice. So by the way, when we played that game on the 14th, we had both already qualified for the gold medal game. So it was a meaningless game. It literally meant nothing. Mm -hmm. And so we had worked three days later, we knew we were going to meet in the gold medal game, but we went in with so much confidence. And, uh, but the, but to answer your question, the rest of the world was fully expecting us to win a silver medal. And it, it was a pretty big drop off after the two of us. So anything less than a silver would have been a real disappointment. And people will still say, you know, cause I got a silver in salt Lake that how great that is. And, and to me, it's still losing the gold. Um, so I think that that we knew we were going to win, but we shocked everybody else, even within the world of women's hockey. And, uh, the connections, like you said, have lasted a long time. I know um, we don't necessarily want to advertise your other podcast, but it is a great listen with you and Cami <laughs> Granado. And uh, you know, Cami was the captain of that team, and it's and works for Seattle as a scout. Is there um, to see not just the two of you working still in hockey and and other women 
that have come after you in the U.S. Kendall Schofield. You know, there's there's plenty of people that have joined the NHL or joined the, the you know USA Hockey um, commentating. Did it kind of feel like you were there for the for kind of the the birth of of a movement almost? I mean, it sounds I don't want to put it all on you, but uh, <laughs> but it must feel great to know that that from that day forward, there's been so much to to love about women's hockey and to see the growth of it and and the growth of so many of the people that were involved in it uh, in the game. Well, it's funny that you, you actually mentioned the podcast. That's where I talked to Mark Johnson. We had him <laughs> on and I wasn't going to say it. I didn't want it to be a shameless plug, but that it is, it's been fun to, I mean, Cam and I have stayed in touch anyway, but fun to reconnect with her in this way. Um, but, you know, to, yeah, to answer your question, it, it's interesting because I still feel like there were so many women that came before me. I know we are considered pioneers and that we really did break through a glass ceiling that existed, uh, which is, which is amazing. And I'm so proud of my teammates and being a part of that team uh, for what we were able to accomplish. There were plenty of really inspiring women who came before us, who paved the way so that then we could finally get to the spot where we could break that glass ceiling. And and some of those women, just their the timing was off. They weren't able to compete in the Olympics. And, and there is, there is sort of a sadness in that. Um, and, you know, and then people will look at 2018, by the way, 2018 gold medal was on the same date as the miracle on ice. So 20, February 22nd, 1980 and February 22nd, 2018, both great days. I mean, both years, that was a great day in American hockey history, but, you know, people will look at them and say, they're such pioneers and they are in a lot of ways, because they took it a whole nother step. Right. And they, they really brought so much notoriety to the game in terms of what people have been able to do in the game outside of playing, I do, I, I, I am proud of that. I'm proud of my role in that. Um, and it is, it's interesting when I, when I do broadcasting, I sometimes have to compartmentalize that so that I don't feel the pressure. And I don't mean that it's all on my shoulders, but it's more that I want to do at least a good enough job so that the door doesn't shut behind me. Right. And it doesn't mean that I got to be the, <laughs> the best, whatever it is. It's more that I want to do a good enough job so that when these women that are playing now and when they retire and they want to get into broadcasting and Kendall's done a great job, Megan Duggan's done some mm -hmm. broadcasting. I know the Lamaru twins has, have done some, uh, Haley Skarupa has done some down in Washington, uh, DC. So there have been people that have done that. And I, and I'm so proud. I think it's wonderful. Uh, Blake Bolden is going to do some coming up. She played not for the Olympics, but for team USA and she's a scout for the LA Kings. So there are, women out there and notice I'm, I'm mentioning all American women. There are some Canadians that are doing things, but we'll, we can leave that off this podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, this is, we're talking about American hockey right now and your right. 1998 gold medal. So uh, yeah, those are, those are fun memories and an important anniversary. Miracle on ice is great, but we have a better connection to, uh, to 1998. So thanks for sharing well, those. Thank you. I, <laughs> I appreciate you bringing it up. It's always fun to reminisce. So thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to no sleep till Belmont. If you're, if you're listening to us uh, on any of your favorite platforms, audio platforms, please subscribe. Leave a rating and review if you're enjoying the show. That really helps us out. You can also subscribe to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month by visiting theathletic.com slash no sleep till Belmont. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.